Well, this morning, again, we have the wonderful privilege of coming um, to uh, John chapter 7 in our study of uh, God's Word. Uh, in, in our text, uh, Jesus is at the Feast of uh, Booths in uh, Jerusalem some six months or so before he's going to be uh, arrested and crucified. And he's teaching God's Word, God's truth at, at the temple. And, and in our text, we'll see that uh, as he teaches, the continual unfolding tragedy of unbelief uh, play out before us. Uh, the religious leaders have uh, rejected him. They're seeking his life. The masses, the, the crowds that are there are divided over who he is. They are confused uh, over who he is. Some people think that he is a good man. Others think that he is leading people astray. Therefore, he is a deceiver. As I told you previously, both uh, groups are wrong. Uh, both uh, uh, ideas are in error. Both groups, therefore, remain under God's condemnation uh, because both groups have failed to believe the truth, who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is mankind's only hope of salvation. He is mankind's only hope of forgiveness of sin and eternal life and reconciliation with a holy God. There is no other means of salvation except through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the tragedy of unbelief and the rejection of, uh, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ is a constant theme uh, through the book of, of John. In fact, John begins in chapter 1, in the beginning of his book, John chapter 1, verse 10, speaking of Jesus, he says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. So the, uh, the, the, the rejection of Christ uh, is everywhere in this book. Although the entire purpose of John writing the gospel is to reveal who Jesus is. Uh, John 20 and 31, These things have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So to have saving faith, it is crucial that you understand correctly and accurately who Jesus Christ is, that you understand biblically who Jesus Christ is. And again, the text before us is going to... Uh, continue to reveal that for us. The text before us is going to tell us why the Jews did not believe or did not receive Jesus and what is necessary if we are to receive eternal life. That, that as men, we have to believe and accept the claims of Christ, that we must accept Jesus and his teachings and Jesus for who he actually is. But again, the sad reality is most people won't do that. Most people will not do that. They, they, they will not believe what Jesus says to be true. They will not believe who he is. Therefore, they are unwilling to be saved. Most people in the world are unwilling to be saved. So my question for you at the start of the hour is, what about you this morning? Are you willing to be saved? We've talked about it a lot in our study in this uh, series of John that unbelief, while it shows up everywhere, unbelief is not rational. Uh, unbelief is, is not the position of the so-called sophisticated or educated modern man. Because the truth is, there are lots of people who are unsophisticated and uneducated who don't believe. Right? It has nothing to do with sophistication or education. And, and there's nothing uh, uh, new or modern about unbelief because people say, well, you know, my modern mind is so great. I, I just can't believe this stuff. Well, there's nothing modern about unbelief because you have unbelief in the first century. People refuse to believe uh, on the person of Jesus Christ just like they do in our time. So there's nothing unique about any of those positions. 
The issue always comes down to the issue of the heart. It's always the hardness of the heart, the hardness of the heart of the unbeliever. And as I've been telling you through this series, it's always related to the words of Jesus. It comes down to the words of Jesus, Jesus' teaching. And the question is, are you willing to listen? Are you willing to listen to the words of Christ? Are you willing to humble yourselves under the word of God? Because the prideful, the arrogant, the self-righteous will never enter into the kingdom of God in that kind of an attitude without humbling themselves. James 4 and 6, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4 and 10, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he'll exalt you. 1 Peter 5 and 5, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Matthew 18, 3, Christ says, Truly I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Luke 18, 17, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter in at all. So again, the question is, are you willing to be saved? And are you willing to humble yourself under the teaching of the Scripture? Verse 16 of our text this morning says, Jesus therefore answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. Meaning that what Jesus was teaching there in the temple uh, that day, uh, that his words were from heaven. Therefore, what Jesus was teaching was divine revelation. The way of salvation, the way of eternal life, doesn't come from men. It's not revealed by men, but it, it doesn't come from man. It's not revealed by man. But the doctrine of life, the doctrine of salvation, comes from a God. God reveals that truth to us. Uh, the eternal plan and purposes of God revealed to men, revealed to the heart of man through the person of the Holy Spirit about the fact that God desires to save, that God has a tremendous love for the world, that he desires that men would be saved and be reconciled. That story doesn't come from men. It comes from God. But a man has to be willing. He has to desire to know God. He has to have a desire to know God. He has to desire to know God's will, to know God's truth and to listen to the Son of God, and then he has to have a desire to obey, to obey God. Look at verse 17. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself or from myself. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. But again, most people aren't willing most people not only will not humble themselves, they won't listen to the truth, and they most certainly will not obey God. Because if men did that, that would mean that they would no longer listen. They would no longer be God in their own life. They would no longer be Lord over their own lives. They would, in fact, have to submit themselves to the will of God. That would mean that God would become God in their lives, and the Lord Jesus Christ would become the Lord of their lives, and again, not they themselves. So because men are not willing and men won't listen, men won't obey, men won't humble themselves, most men find themselves outside of the realm of salvation because they themselves are unwilling to be saved because, again, simply they won't humble themselves. Nor, again, do they want to obey God nor obey Christ. The writer of the book of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 5 and 9, uh, having been made perfect, he, speaking of Jesus, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So Jesus Christ is the, ter the source of eternal salvation, not for those who are in a constant, permanent state of rebellion against him, but for those who will obey and bow their knee and obey him and follow him. But again, sadly, most people aren't willing to do that. Most people are not willing to obey the will of God. 
most people aren't willing to listen to the word of God. Most people aren't willing to listen to the word of Christ. Therefore, most men are not willing to be saved. Now, Jesus says, has, has said a lot of things, quite a few things, quite a few amazing things so far in the book of John and in other gospel accounts. And we've been repeatedly talking about the fact that it's always the words of Jesus. It's always the words that offend people. And some of the claims that Jesus makes, has made already in our study, and he will make in the rest of the New Testament, are astonishing. They're shocking claims. Uh, they are outrageous to the ear of the natural man. For example, Jesus said that he came down from heaven, John 3, that he was eternal. Jesus said that he was sent into the world by the Father, John 3, 17. Jesus claimed to be the only Savior of the world, again, John 3 and 17. He said he was the one who determines people's eternal destinies, John 5. Again, the only source of eternal life, the only way to God, John 14. He claimed to have the right to be honored and worshipped on an equal basis with the eternal uh, Father. He was one with the Father. Jesus claimed to have the power to raise the dead and even to raise himself from the dead. He claimed to be the one the, home, old, uh, the entire Old Testament pointed to, that he was its main subject. Jesus made claims that he is the supreme judge of the universe and that one day he'll return in glory in Matthew 16. Jesus in John 8 claimed to be without sin, to have all authority in heaven on earth, John 17. Matthew 9, he claimed to have authority to forgive sins. Matthew 12, 12 authority over the Sabbath, authority to answer prayer, John 14. Authority to authorize prayer in his name, John 15. He claimed that he was greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, greater than Jacob, greater than Abraham. He claimed to be the bread of life, again meaning that he is the only source for spiritual life, spiritual sustenance. Again, he claimed that people had to eat his flesh and drink his blood metaphorically if they wanted to have eternal life. He claimed to be the light of the world. He claimed to be the one who could give men living water so that one would drink from it freely and never thirst again. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God, the one who would be seated at the right hand of God the Father in glory. Now those are some claims. And as a result, as one writer puts it, he says there's only three possible explanations for the amazing claims that Jesus made. Either he was a deranged madman, a diabolical deceiver, or exactly who he claimed to be. There's no other place to put him. He's either deranged, diabolical, or exactly who he claimed to be. Verse 12 of our chapter here says, There was much grumbling among the multitudes concerning him. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, well, on the contrary, he leads multitudes astray. Again, both of these uh, um, thoughts of the person of Jesus are damningly wrong. And then the blasphemous claim made about him in verse 20, the multitude answered, said, you have a demon. There were some people who were a bit more charitable to him. Uh, they just said he was merely insane, a madman, Acts chapter 12. But again, the issue always comes down to the words of Jesus Christ, what he says. Remember again, back in John 6, he fed the, those multitude uh, uh, lunch at the Sea of Galilee or dinner at the, night, the, the Sea of Galilee the night before, and then they come back for breakfast uh, the following day, and they couldn't deal with his words. They claimed to be followers of him, but they abandoned him. They were false followers. They rejected him because they too were unwilling to be saved. 
So again, the question is for you who are listening, are you willing to be saved? What about you? Because the issue is you're going to have to deal with the person of Jesus Christ. It always comes down to what do you think about Jesus Christ? Because the answer to that question determines the eternal destiny of your soul. And again, Jesus isn't going to give you an out here. I've already told you this. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. So Jesus has come and he's drawn the metaphorical line in the sand and said, look, I'll, I'll make it easy for you. If you're not with me, you're against me. So none of the platitudes, I don't need to hear anymore, I'm a good guy and all that kind of stuff. No, if you're not with me, you're against me. That's the position Jesus Christ has. Everyone has to deal with him. And most certainly he can't just be a mere man because all of the claims that I just read to you, the, the, none of those leave that as a viable option. He could, I guess, be a madman. He could be insane. He could be a false teacher. He could be a deceiver. It's possible that the devil perhaps is possessed and taking control of him, that he the ultimate deceiver and ultimate liar, but that's not true. Or he's exactly who he claimed to be. Exactly who the Bible claims for him to be. So again, you have to decide because your eternal destiny depends upon your decision about the person of Jesus Christ. Now, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Andrew and John, chapter 1 of this book, said he is the Christ, the Messiah. Philip said he is the one of whom Moses spoke of. Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the teacher of Israel, who doesn't have a complete picture, he had enough of a picture to say this, We know that you're a teacher come from God because no one can do the work you do unless God is with him. Chapter 4, the woman at the well with the Samaritans from that village in Sychar, they came to believe and affirm that he was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Peter, John chapter 6, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Right, when all the multitudes uh, leave uh, Christ. And he turns to them and says, do you want to leave also? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Verse 69, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So you're going to have to make a decision. What are you going to do with Jesus? Now in John chapter 7 and chapter 8, the hatred towards him is increasing. And again, John, the writer of this book, says, Look, these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that you might have life in him. Have you noticed that things are heating up in the culture? Well, forget a discourse on the chaos in the culture, but just the anger in the culture. And that anger is going to start coming, as it already has in many places around the world, it's going to start coming towards the church. The anger is going to increase. The hatred is going to increase. And again, irrespective of what the culture does and what people in the world do, the question always remains the same. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? John says, these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. That's the reason the book was written. So the question will be, will you hate Christ as the world does, or will you be willing to believe upon him? Will you be willing to be saved? If so, if you want to be saved, then you're going to have to humble yourself. You're going to have to receive and listen to the words of Christ. You're going to have to believe in his person. You're going to have to believe what the Bible says to be true about him, and you're going to have to believe what he says to be true about him. Because the Bible says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the 
the word of God, right? Or the word of Christ, John or Romans 10 and 17. Now verse 14. It says, When it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. Now again, you'll remember from our time together last time, there are three feasts, three great feasts at Jerusalem that every male was expected to be at. And we're at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And this Feast of Tabernacles was a time that looked back and remembered God's provision for bringing Israel out of Egypt and their time in the wilderness when they wandered there for those uh, 40 years when they lived in tents or they lived in booths. It was a time to rejoice in God's goodness and his provision. It was also a time of rejoicing and looking forward to the time where the kingdom of God will come again with uh, all of its attendant blessings. The Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles was a week-long celebration. Uh, people would make these little temporary shelters out of out of branches all over the place as their forefathers had done, again, remembering how God had brought them out and delivered them in, in their wilderness wanderings. And Jesus shows up in the middle of the week of this celebration because back in uh, verse 1 of chapter 7, he knew the religious leaders wanted to kill him. Verse 1, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, and he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, he's been away from Judea for a year, but the hostility in that area is increasing against him. Verse 2, it says, Now the feast of the booths, uh, the, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was at hand. So again, the brothers, his brothers at the time, tried to encourage him to go with them up to this required feast. But as we saw in our text last time, he refuses to go with them and to put himself on display publicly before the proper time. Because all of Jesus' life was uh, lived on a sovereign timetable. Uh, the time for him to enter into Jerusalem is not here at the Feast of the Booths, uh, for the, or the time for him to not enter into a, publicly the, into Jerusalem, or openly at the, uh, the Feast of Booths, but it's six months. It's coming. What did I say was going to happen in six months? Right? There's going to be the Passover in six months, and that's where he will present himself publicly as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So again, in the context of the story, his brothers who don't believe him, they're encouraging him to go up. I told you when you would go up to Jerusalem, there would be a large caravan. So again, it's a public display, and uh, he's not going to go with them because he knows the divine timetable he's on, and he says it's not the right time. So they depart, but then he still goes up, and he goes up secretly, as it were, as John says. Luke says that he, he goes through Samaria to get there, he enters, re-enters Jerusalem, and he goes again secretly to the feast about midweek. The religious leaders, again, are, are, are determined to execute him. And he says in verse 7 that the world hates him. So again, the religious leaders are looking for him at the beginning of the week. Verse 11, the Jews, therefore, were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? Or where is that one? They won't say his name. Where, where's that one? It's really a term of disdain, a term of derision. And again, the Jewish religious leaders hated him for his words, for all the claims that he made about himself. They hated him most specifically when he claimed that their sin, uh, that all they did was sinful and all of their deeds were evil. So there's great animosity by the religious leaders towards the person of Jesus. Verse 12 says there's also great confusion over who he is. There was much grumbling among the multitudes concerning him. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying no, on the contrary. He leads the multitude astray. Verse 13, yet no one was speaking openly uh, of him for the fear of the Jews. 
But when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach, verse 14. So this would be something that was customary for rabbis to do, to come and teach in the temple. Now at this time, at the feast, uh, there would be countless numbers of individuals from all over uh, Israel and uh, other Jewish uh, uh, settlements from a distance. So there's probably a tremendous crowd here at this festival. And again, the religious leaders are looking for him. They're looking for him at the beginning of the week, but they can't find him, so he comes here in the middle of the week. And then all of a sudden, unexpectedly, he shows up in the temple and he's teaching. And again, no doubt before a large crowd of people who've gathered around to listen to him. When he suddenly appears, some of the older commentators say, you know, this is a fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Matthew Henry says this, he says, The words of Malachi 3 seem a direct answer to the profane atheistical demand of the scoffers of those days which closed chapter 2 of that book of Malachi, who were mockingly saying, Where is the God of judgment? Of which uh, it is readily answered, he says, here he is, here he is, just come and look. Right? He's at the door. The long-expected Messiah is ready to appear. The Malachi chapter 2 cl- closes with that kind of a statement. The scoffers are saying, well, <laughs> your God's coming back, just like today. <laughs> you really think he's coming back? You know, it's been 2,000 years. You know, things are the way they've always been. And that's exactly what the Bible says, the way it will be. Just like it was in the day of the flood, people don't believe what God says. You don't believe that judgment is coming because of sin. It will be that way when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. People will be just doing the everyday activities of life, and then suddenly he'll appear, just like suddenly he appears at the temple. Who is at the temple? Henry says, the Lord Adonai. The basis and the foundation in which the world is formed. The world is fastened. The rule of the governor of all. The Lord over all. The one who has all power committed to him. The messenger of the covenant. The blessed one that was sent from heaven to negotiate peace and settle a correspondence between God and man. That's who he is. That's who has suddenly appeared in the temple. Now again, Jesus' sudden appearance there in the temple must have caught the religious leaders off guard. Right? They want to arrest him, but they can't. Verse 32 says they send, uh, the Pharisees will send officers to seize him, but there's so many people around him, they can't uh, arrest him. And there's so many varying opinions of who he is, uh, they can't arrest him. Look at verse 44 if you have your Bible open. Verse 44 says no one lays hands on him. Verse 45 says the officers therefore came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to him, why did you not bring him? Why didn't you arrest him? Verse 46, the officers answered, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. Again, I'm telling you, it's the words. It's always the words of the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 47, the Pharisees therefore answered him, you've not also been led astray, have you? Right? The guards have come to arrest him. They can't arrest him because they can't get past his words. No one has spoken like him. So there he is. He suddenly appears. He's in the temple. He's there in the courtyard, as Rabbi would do. He takes the role of teacher and begins to teach. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't tell us exactly what he taught in this situation, but you'd have to assume the teaching was some long, uh, along the lines of all of the other teaching that he regularly did, something along the lines of sin and righteousness and judgment to come, salvation, uh, the kingdom of heaven, etc. and so forth. 
the Holy Spirit does record for us the reaction of uh, those religious leaders who are listening to what he is teaching. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit kind of gives us an outline here, if you will, uh, of what the Lord is teaching. The Lord is actually giving five different lines of evidence to again prove the reality of who he is. That's why the book is written. That's what's going on here. Five different lines of evidence. One commentator says five features to lead doubters and skeptics to believe the astounding claims of the person of Jesus Christ. Again, to believe the fact that the Messiah has suddenly appeared in his temple. Five reasons to believe. Again, everything that I've just read to you previously that Jesus has said about himself is absolutely true. Now, the outline that I'm going to give you is not mine. It's barred, but once I lay it out for you, you're going to see it's very helpful. And I think this is the best way to look at this text. Five reasons to believe uh, the claims of Christ. I'm going to give them to you machine gun style, right? And you're going to go, oh, I can't write those down. It's okay. I'll give them to you again as we work our way through it. Or listen to the sermon again, and by Thursday you'll figure it out. Five reasons to believe all the claims of Jesus. Number one, the source of his knowledge. Number two, his desire to do God's will. Number three, his desire to glorify the Father. Number four, his declaration of man's sinfulness. And number five, his signs or his deeds of righteousness. The source of his knowledge, his desire to do God's will, his desire to glorify the Father, his declaration of man's sinfulness, and his deeds, his signs of righteousness. So again, hostility is increasing. And even in the midst of facing hostility, opposition, increasing hatred, I told you, Jesus never backs down from the truth. He fearlessly proclaims the truth about his identity, about his mission, about man's need to repent and to believe upon him. Because the reality is time is short and eternity is coming. Stakes are high. And again, what you do with the person of Jesus Christ determines your eternal destiny. Time is short, eternity is coming, and there's a day fixed in judgment. And none of us knows when that day will come. None of us knows when we'll take our last breath and step into eternity and face the eternal judge. So I absolutely guarantee and I beg you that you might consider what you're going to do with the person of Jesus Christ. Are you willing to be saved? Are you willing to humble yourself? Are you willing to listen to the words of Christ? Are you willing to come to the only source, the only fountain of eternal life? So let's begin here proper by looking at the source of Christ's knowledge as he lays it out here for us. When it was in the midst of the feast of the Jews, or when it was in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach, verse 15. The Jews, therefore, were marveling, or they were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? How knoweth this man letters, having never been learned, as it says in the authorized? And don't miss the irony of the situation here because John's intentionally trying to bring you, point your attention to it. Here are these proud religious leaders of Israel, so-called. And they are coming face-to-face, toe-to-toe, with the incarnate word. The one who created the world, the universe, and everything in it by the power of his word. He spoke it into existence. 
And these so-called religious leaders, they refer to him as this man or this uneducated fellow. Again, it's a term of derision. It's a term of contempt. The Jews, again, which are the religious leaders that are always constantly hostile towards the person of Christ, therefore were marveling or astonished at his teaching. Now, there's a couple of different ways you can take that phrase. No doubt when Jesus did teach, the general reaction, when the, when the master is teaching, people were always amazed at his teaching. You see that at the beginning of his ministry, back in the Sermon on the Mountain, in Matthew chapter 7, people were amazed because he taught as one having authority, as one possessing authority, which means he didn't quote other rabbis. Uh, the people were amazed at his teaching by his power, by his authority, by his words, by his doctrine, uh, by his knowledge. And again, think back to the temple police. Uh, they no doubt had heard lots of sermons, a lot of rabbis teaching. And they, by their own admission, said, we've never heard anybody teach like this. Nobody ever spoke like this man. So again, there is on one level, uh, 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 his teaching has a tremendous amount of profundity, uh, knowledge, clarity, uh, a divine understanding the other rabbis don't possess. And again, when Jesus spoke, he didn't quote other sources. He didn't quote other rabbis. He just spoke the truth. He would say something along the lines of, you have heard it said, fill in the blank, but I say to you. Again, he's not quoting other people. He's quoting the truth. He's quoting himself. He's just saying, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. So there is an astonishment or a marveling uh, by the, the population in general. But here in the context, the marveling of the astonishment by the Jewish religious leaders who are always in confrontation with Jesus, and again, who, who hate him, have a tremendous hatred for him, doesn't necessarily mean that they were favorably impressed by Jesus' teaching. More than likely, the uh, amazement here was the audacity of this person, Jesus Christ, to come and to take the role of a religious leader in the temple because he didn't have the approved credentials from any Jewish authority. How has this man, this fellow, this nobody, this uneducated man, how has this man become learned having never been educated? You know, he, he's never attended a single one of our universities, he's never gone to any of our rabbinical schools. Who, who does he think he is? It's probably more along the lines of what that, that phrase means. What's going on here? And Jesus immediately responds to their challenge by declaring the source of his knowledge. Verse 16. Jesus therefore answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Now, I tell you right up front, he's a good Bible expositor because like any Bible expositor, he says that very thing right up front. I'm not teaching anything that belongs to me and I'm not teaching you anything that belongs to me. My teaching is not mine. It's his who sent me. My, my teaching, my doctrine. Didache is the word. Uh, instruction. My, my teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. So again, like I just said, Jesus, unlike other rabbis, never quoted other rabbis. It, it, it is a true wisdom that did not come from any source or any human institution. Again, he didn't receive training from the quote-unquote proper uh, rabbinical schools. In, in our terms, he's never been to seminary. He, he's never been ordained by any ecclesi ecclesiastical body. He just simply quoted God. He just simply quoted the, the living God. He just spoke the truth. His word who sent me. And again, Jesus spoke truth directly from God himself, the one who sent him. 
And this is where his authority came from. And listen, this is the only place that any true preacher's authority comes from. It only comes from the word of God. We who preach have no authority in ourselves, save that comes from the word of God. The word of God is the authority in the room. I tell you that always. It's the word of God that's the authority. And he preached the word of God. He proclaimed the fact over and over again and repeated it, that he'd been sent from heaven. For example, John 3 and 16. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world might be be saved. He didn't send him to condemn. He sent him to save. I told you, if you're here on Friday night, I had a discussion with a a local who uh, lives in the, in the area and came to me and said, well, look, you know, I'm kind of looking. And, uh, um, you know, I converted to Islam a few uh, years ago, but I'm not certain. So we talked, you know, it's like we serve the same God. No, we don't. Allah has no son. The living God has a son. And I told him, you have to believe what this book says. I gave him a gospel of John. We opened there different passages. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's a claim, an exclusive claim. It's either true or it's false. Jesus Christ can't make that claim that you come through him alone and then Allah make a claim or Muhammad on the behalf of Allah make a claim or whoever else make a claim that maybe it's the Jehovah's Witnesses, maybe it's the Mormons, maybe it's the Catholics, maybe it's just... No, those all can't be exclusively true. One of them has to be true and everyone else has to be false or they're all false. Jesus said, look, my authority comes from God. I am God's son. If Jesus is God, worship him. And you should worship him because Allah doesn't have a son. And if you don't bow your knee to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we looked it up, you're under the wrath of God. That's truth. Make a decision. That's what I told him. Jesus Christ said, or John the Baptist says of Jesus Christ, John 3 and 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven and hell, he who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, that he bears witness, and no man receives his witness. He who has received his witness has the seal, his seal on uh, set to this, that this is the true God. For he whom God sent speaks the words of God that give spirit without measure. Again, Jesus Christ, John the Baptist says he's come from above. He's come from heaven. Uh, John uh, chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it's something that he has seen the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, these things the Son does also in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him that you may marvel. Again, everything comes from the Father. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. John 8 and 28, Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak those things the Father has taught me. John 12 and 49, For I do not speak of my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me has given me the commandment to say what I speak. And I know that His commandment is eternal life. Therefore, these things I speak just as the Father has told me. I mean, it goes on and on. I got more in the, in the notes. 
John 14, 10, John 14, 24, John 17, 8, John 17, 14. Again, over and over again, I'm not speaking my own words. I'm speaking the words of the one who sent me. Verse 16, Jesus therefore answered and said, My teaching is not my own, but him who sent me. So again, the teaching of Jesus on one level was radically different than all the rabbis because the source of his teaching didn't originate with men. The source of his teaching didn't originate with men, didn't come from Jewish religious schools. It was heavenly. It was divine. Again, his doctrine, his teaching came from the one who sent him. He again spoke the words of the Father. The one who knows the Father, the one who knows the mind of the Father, spoke the words of the Father. He spoke exactly what God the Father told him to say. My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. So again, when Jesus spoke, he didn't speak philosophy. He didn't speak speculation as the rabbis would. Since he came from God, sent from God, with the words of God, he spoke God's truth. Divine, supernatural truth. Therefore, he could authoritatively teach on every subject he taught. He could authoritatively teach about God the Father. He could authoritatively teach about all men's position before this holy God in heaven. He could authoritatively teach on how men alone may have eternal life because Jesus' teaching was supernatural. And again, because Jesus' teaching is supernatural, that's why we should embrace his words. That's why we should embrace the claims that Christ makes because of his supernatural knowledge, his supernatural teaching. Secondly, we should embrace the words of Christ and his claims because of his desire to do God's will. We should embrace the words and the claims of Christ because of his desire to do God's will. Verse 17. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Now, verse 17 is an interesting verse. Because Jesus was solely focused on the will of God. You might remember that uh, account back in John chapter 4, verse 34, the encounter with the woman of Samaria. He tells his disciples, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5 and 30, I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6 and 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus was focused on doing the will of God. And what Jesus is doing here in verse 17 is laying down a practical principle of how one might gain certainty and clarity regarding spiritual truth. So since Jesus only spoke the truth from the Father, and since Jesus only desires to do the will of his Father, likewise, only those who desire to do the will of the Father will have spiritual discernment and understanding. <coughs> Excuse me. Only those who desire to do the will of the Father will have spiritual discernment and understanding. Again, look at verse 17. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself. Now, unlike the seeker-sensitive model that is so popular in our day, the seeker-sensitive model that says, look, you should come to Jesus for what Jesus can give to you. You can come to Jesus for what you can get from him. Again, just like the people who had dinner, now they want breakfast, they're coming to him. They want to make him king because they want an endless source of uh, food. Jesus says, however, your desire to come to him should not be motivated by your desire to get what you want from God. 
but your desire to come to him should be motivated by your desire to do what God commands you to do. Again, if any man is willing to do his will, the Father's will, if any man is willing to do his will, if anyone wants to do God's will, if anyone's uh, will is to do God's will, if anyone chooses to do God's will, he says, you shall know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself. Right? If you're to do God's will, if you're willing to do the will of the Father, you'll find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I'm just speaking in my own initiative, one version says. And you know what? That's exactly where salvation starts. That's where salvation starts. Under the conviction of the person of the Holy Spirit, you sense your sinfulness. You sense your wretchedness, your lack of righteousness before God. You sense the coming judgment against your sin. You realize, as the Word of God says, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and that unless you repent, you're going to face eternal judgment. You're tired of your sin. You're tired of the devastating effect that has, effect that has had on your life. And you realize that you're an enemy of God, that you're on the wrong side of God. You want deliverance. You want freedom. You want a, a new master. So you read the word of God. You take up the word of God. And God says he sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. You pick up the word of God and you read it. And it says that God desires that all men would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth and not perish. You pick up the word of God and it says that he demands your obedience, your repentance from your sin and your faith exclusively in his son. You take up the word of God and you read that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart a man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And in obedience to the word of God, in obedience to God himself, you turn from your sin. You turn from your life of rebellion. You believe the word of God and you repent. And you believe upon the Son of the Lord Jesus, the God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in an instant, you're changed. In an instant, you're transformed. And in an instant, your will is no longer to do your will. But now as a new creation in Christ, the one who has placed their trust in the living Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, your will now is to do the will of the one who loved you. Your will now is to do the will of the one who saved your soul. And now, because of this transformation, this regeneration, you look upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in a different manner. You look upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, you look upon the word of, uh, the, uh, the word of God, and you love the person of Christ, and you love his word. Amen? And now you listen to the word of God and the word of Christ and it gives you hope it gives you encouragement it, it transforms your soul encourages your heart brings you comfort and brings you courage in a fallen world and you know at that moment this is divine truth this is not the ramblings of men this is divine truth this is God's word God desires to be known God desires that you would know him this is God's truth supernatural truth Truth that saves, truth that transforms, truth that can set your soul free. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. However, if you refuse to repent, if you refuse to 
humble yourselves, if you refuse to bow the knee, if you refuse in your rebellion to do the will of God, then you'll not know the teaching of Christ. You'll not know the teaching of Christ. You'll not know the doctrine. You'll not know the truth that brings eternal life that forgives and sets your soul free. The word of God will be hidden from you. You will see and not be able to see. You will hear and not be able to hear because of the hardness of your own heart. Because the truth is you are unwilling to be saved. That's the truth. One writer says this. He says, The reason that people do not recognize Jesus for who he is does not hinge on enough, does not hinge on having enough evidence, but rather on having enough obedience. That's the issue. Too many people want to remain Lord and God of their own lives, therefore they reject the true Lord and the true God. The reason that people do not recognize Jesus for who he is does not hinge on having enough evidence but rather on having enough obedience. If a person is committed to disobedience, then that person will be unwilling to humble themselves under the teaching of the Word of God, under the teaching of the Bible. Then that person will never come to a knowledge of the truth. Because if you come to the Bible as a scoffer, you're going to go away from the Bible as a scoffer. That's verse 17. That's the fundamental principle that Jesus is laying down here. The condition for obtaining spiritual truth, for obtaining spiritual knowledge. It's a genuine heart's desire to carry out the revealed will of God in your life. Jesus in John 14, 21 says, He who has my commandment and keeps them is he who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. The opposite is also true. You don't obey Christ, and he's not going to disclose himself to you. It's that simple. Arthur Pink says this, Wherever the heart is right, God gives the capacity to apprehend his truth. If the heart be not right, wherein would be the value of knowing God's truth? God will not grant light on his word unless we are truly anxious to walk according to the light. If the motive of the investigator be pure, then he will obtain an assurance that the teaching of Scripture is of God. That will be far more convincing and conclusive than a hundred logical arguments. That's a tremendous statement. If the heart be not right, wherein would be the value of knowing God's truth? Right? If you already come and you don't want to believe and you don't want to obey, God's not going to reveal the truth to you, so what's your problem? Right? If you don't want to be saved, don't be saved. Walk away. If God is... If all is God, serve him. If Jesus is God, you better serve him. I guarantee you, all is not God. You come to the word of God with a disobedient heart, God's not going to open the truth to you. Romans chapter 8, verse 7 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, neither can it be. 1 Corinthians 2 and 14, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolish to him. You cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. You want to know truth? You want to be set free from a world of lies? You want to be set free from your own sin and your own wretched life? Then you need to repent. You need to bow the knee. You need to become obedient to the word of God. And then you'll understand the words of Christ, his teaching, his doctrine. You'll understand that it is not his own, it's divine. It's the word of the Father from heaven who desires that men would know him 
and that men would be forgiven and that men would have eternal life. The reasons that Jesus puts forward here in his teaching to believe. Number one, the source of his knowledge. Number two, his desire to do the will of God. Number three, his desire to seek God's glory. Verse 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Now you're familiar with this. The New Testament over and over has many warnings about false teachers. And the fact that false teachers do what they do out of greed. They do what they do out of love for money, for personal gain. And they especially do what they do to glorify themselves. To bring attention to themselves. They do it for power. They do it for prominence. They are self-centered. And it's self-centeredness that marks the false teacher, the charlatan, the fraud. Jesus himself in John chapter 5 verse 44 condemned the Pharisees. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. He says, look, you guys can't believe because you're not really interested in anything else except getting pats on the back from each other. You like giving yourself pats on the back. You're not really interested in giving God's glory, right? You're interested in your own glory. What you're interested in is not the praise of God. You're interested in the praise of men. You want men to praise you rather than God praise you because that's always the way it is with the false teacher, with the hypocrite. They're seeking the praise of men. They're seeking their own glory. But not so the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who came with the words from God the Father, the true teacher sent from God, the one who came and speaks supernatural truth. Verse 18 again, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but who, he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him He is true. There's no unrighteousness in him. So when Jesus Christ came to the earth, when he incarnated himself, he actually set aside his glory. He humbled himself to the dregs. He set aside his glory. He voluntarily laid aside all of that glory that he shared with the Father from all of eternity. And he not only took on our humanity, took on the form of a slave, and he became obedient even to the point of death on the cross, as it says in Philippians 2. So he who knew no sin became sin for us. He, he became our sin bearer. He became our substitute. He bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin, that we might be forgiven, that we might be recreated, righteous, forgiven. Christ had to humble himself. The mark of the true teacher is not the academic degrees a person holds. It's not the size of his congregation. The mark of a true teacher sent from God is his passion that comes from his heart, up from the words that he speaks, the words from God, the words of God, the words about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glorious Father who's in heaven. A true teacher calls attention to Christ. A true teacher doesn't call attention to himself, but he draws attention to the Savior. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Christ Jesus' sake. We just keep pointing people to Christ. I've often told you that one of the ways that you can evaluate any teacher, whether you're listening to uh, on the radio and somebody told me an interesting story uh, about a quote-unquote preacher they heard this morning on the way in. One of the ways that you can tell the truth from the false is not only listening to what they say, but listen to what they don't say. Listen very carefully to what they don't talk about. 
You have heard sermons, and so have I, unfortunately, many sermons that could have very easily been preached in the Mormon tabernacle because there's nothing particularly in them to exalt the person of Christ. There's nothing distinctively Christian about them, and they were given in supposedly Christian settings. There's nothing distinctively Christian about the Mormon tabernacle because they don't believe in the Christ of the Bible. Serve a different God. And many so-called preachers, many so-called teachers of our day don't speak about the person of Christ. And not only that, they speak about themselves. Instead of, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it's, behold, look at me. Look how funny I am. Look how popular I am. Look at the car I drive. Look at the suit I wear. It's all about me. Many so-called preachers only speak about men. How to have your best life now. How to be a better father. How to be a better mother. Mother. How to be, how to have a, a Christian bank account. No, oh, it's good. A fellow today told me that the guy he listened to on the radio was talking about various animals, peacocks and, and and fish and frogs and bats and whatever, and how we are like those animals. And I can see myself as a peacock. Nothing about Jesus Christ. Nothing about the only answer to mankind's problems. Have I told you this before? I'll tell you a secret. Our politicians don't have the answers for our world's problems. When is the last time, maybe it should be like, when is the first time, but when is the last time you heard a politician speak about Jesus Christ being mankind's only hope? They don't have the answer. So stop listening to the news. Stop letting your head explode and just realize they've rejected the truth. They've rejected the only one that can save mankind. Mankind's only hope found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who was sent from the Father into the world with the express purpose to glorify the Father. Jesus said, look, we should believe his words. We should believe his person. We should trust his claim because he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who speaks for the glory of the Father, he's a true messenger. A true messenger of God in whom there's no dishonesty, there's no unrighteousness. He seeks the glory of the one who sent him. And that's true with any true messenger of God. He seeks the glory of Christ. He seeks the glory of of God the Father. He draws men's attention to the Savior. That's a mark of a true servant, a mark of a man commissioned by the Father in heaven. It doesn't matter what his academic degree is. It matters what the words are that come out of his mouth to point to God and to Christ. One commentator says this, when Jesus says that he is true and therefore no unrighteousness in him, one commentator says, no false Savior hangs on a cross and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not when they do, when he's being executed. It's his words. The fourth reason to believe the claims of Jesus. His declaration of man's sinfulness. Verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Verse 20, the multitude answered, said, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. Again, did not Moses give you the law? Well, the answer is yes. Yet none of you carries out the law. That's the declaration of the Bible, right? Romans chapter 3. There's none righteous, no, not one. 
Galatians 3, curses everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. You break one law, you're a lawbreaker. James 2 and 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point has become guilty of all. Right? We, we've been talking about this every night in, in a, an evening in Romans 7. And, and I, I say this, if you're not a part of the study in Romans 7, you're missing out. You are missing out. God never gave the law as a means to justify men uh, themselves before him. Uh, God never gave the law to men as a means of making them holy. In fact, the law does the very opposite. God gave the law to point out our sin, to drive us to Christ, to show us how fall, far short we fall of his glory, how far short we fall of perfection, so that we would see our need of mercy and grace before God. The false teachers of Israel didn't understand that. Jesus says, you did not, Moses give you the law, and you're not carrying out the law, right? They didn't understand. Not a single one of them was keeping the law that they so uh, proudly held so high. Because again, God's not just concerned with the externals. God's concerned about the heart. It's not just the act that makes you guilty. Jesus Christ says in Matthew chapter 5, it's the very thought that makes you guilty. It's what's going on in your heart. It's the thought behind the act. And these guys are all puffed up, going around, who's this guy, who does he think he is? How does he have the audacity to come here and teach? And we're the teachers of the law, right? And they hypocritically thought they were keeping God's law. But at the same time, they're crazy with Jesus for coming into the temple. They have murder in their heart. He didn't ask our permission. We should kill him. Oh, exposes their heart. Supposedly the one who are obeying God's law. Their hearts were full of corruption. Their hearts are full of sin. Their hearts are full of legalistic hypocrisy. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Because again, not a single one of them obeyed the law. Not a single one of them saw their need for Christ, because they were all self-righteous. They are all self-satisfied. They all thought by their deeds that they were doing, they were earning their way to heaven, when in reality, they were rushing as fast as they could towards hell. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? So again, the proud Pharisees who are supposedly upholding uh, the law of God are attempting to use the law to justify themselves to do something which they could not do, which is to violate the sixth commandment, which says you shall not murder. In fact, Jesus is going to accuse these false religious leaders a little bit further in John, John chapter 8, verse 44, he's going to accuse them and say, you're of your father the devil. You are of your father the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. But I speak the truth and you do not believe me. And then you have the blasphemous claim by the crowd made against the person of Christ, again, promoted by the false leaders that Jesus is a deceiver. Verse 20, the multitude answered, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. Now that kind of claim against the person of Jesus Christ can only come from one who's under satanic influence. And perhaps maybe at the moment the crowd didn't realize or the crowd wasn't aware of the plot by the religious leaders against the life of Christ to murder him. But again, I remind you in just six short months, Many people who are at the, this uh, feast, no doubt, are going to be at the Passover. 
And it will be that same group of people, that crowd, that will scream out for Christ's death, yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And they will demand for themselves a murderer, Barabbas, to be released and for the life of the innocent one, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they want him murdered. So again, the unrepentant crowd, apart from Christ, does the deeds of their father, the devil, who is, who is a murderer from the beginning. The last truth, very quickly, why people should be leave upon uh, the person of Jesus Christ. The divine source of his knowledge, his desire to do God's will, his desire to glorify the Father, his declaration of man's sinfulness. And number five here is his righteous deeds. The signs he performed, verse 21. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one deed and you marvel. You know where he's going through? He's going back to chapter 5, the last time he was in uh, Judea. That's when he healed the lame man who was lying there at the pool of Bethesda. And the Jews were incensed at him that he healed a man. He healed a man on the Sabbath. And then he said that God was his father. And again, there's not a whole lot of compassion here about the man getting healed. They're just incensed with Jesus and they want to murder him. So again, the religious leaders have no concern for the welfare of the man who'd been lame for so many years who's now healed. Their only concern was the perception that Jesus had violated their Sabbath. And Jesus shows them how perverted their thinking is. Verse 22. On this account, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. So the Old Testament commandment in the Mosaic Law said that all children are to be circumcised, all male children circumcised on the eighth day. But that right goes all the way back to Abraham, back to Genesis 17. So here is a right that begins with uh, Abraham that's reiterated by Moses. That happens to be that when a man is born and the day of his circumcision falls on the day of the Sabbath, verse 23, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, that the law of Moses may not be broken. You go ahead and obey the law even if his eighth day comes on the Sabbath day. So in a sense, they're going to violate their tradition of not working on the Sabbath because they had this prescription religiously they needed to follow that if necessary, the Sabbath could be set aside for something more important, something of a better level of obedience in this circumstance, circumcision. And Jesus says to that kind of a mindset, you're angry with me because I made an entire manhole. Right? Are you angry with me because I made an entire manhole? You're willing to do your part of circumcision, but you're upset with me because I broke your Sabbath. I performed a miracle to make a man well, and you want to murder me. One miracle, Jesus says, that expresses the goodness, the mercy, the kindness of God in the healing of this man. Because it violates your prescription for behavior on your Sabbath, you want to kill me, even though you yourselves violate your own rules because you think circumcision is so important. All it does is just point out the hypocrisy of these people so-called religious leaders of Israel. More concerned with their rules than the well-being of men. More concerned with the rules, their rules, than the display of God's mercy and God's kindness through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, the whole thing proves the reality of the fact that he's no mere man. The healing of the man there at the pool, I told you that the miraculous powers of Jesus were never even questioned by even the Jews who hated him because they were too numerous and too undeniable. 
verse 44, Jesus says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous motive or righteous judgment. He says, look at the evidence. Judge righteously. And that's the same thing I'll say to you. Look at the evidence. Here's a man who looked like any other man. But his words, his actions, his claims, his deeds, his miraculous power, his compassion, his authority proves the fact beyond any shadow of a doubt that he's no mere man. These are the reasons to believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the reasons to believe everything that he says is true. And according to the question of the hour is, are you willing to be saved? Are you willing to humble yourself? Repent. Believe the words of life. Believe everything that Jesus Christ says to be true about himself. Believe everything that the word of God says to be true about God's son. These things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name.